During Jesus' final week, he came to Jerusalem, as did thousands of others, to celebrate Passover. And during Jesus' final week, this last week of his life, it was filled with Jesus' powerful teaching as well as his confrontations with the religious leaders. And during the week, the escalation just ten- and the tension just mounted and mounted and mounted. Jesus knew that his time was drawing near, and the religious leaders continued to plot to bring about the demise of Jesus. But on Thursday of that week, and what would become the night before the cross, Jesus gathered his disciples. What did Jesus gather his disciples for on that evening? They gathered together to celebrate the Passover meal. I want you to try to imagine in your mind's eye what that scene might have been like in the upper room as these uh, men gathered together to celebrate the Passover meal, as they would have uh, eaten the Passover lamb, the unleavened bread, they would have drank wine, fixtures of the meal. And with all that was going on in the midst of Jesus' life, knowing what loomed in front of him, Jesus did not neglect the Passover meal. He kept the Passover meal. Indeed, it was the most important of all the Jewish festivals. Every Jewish person was commanded to keep the Passover. In the midst of this time, in the midst of this meal, Jesus pauses and he transforms the Passover. He takes the bread and the wine And he makes them into something new, transforms them into something new for his people. Something that will become an ongoing ceremony for the church. So as we think about that momentous occasion there on the night before Jesus' death, as he was celebrating the Passover, two things really should stand out in our mind. One is the importance of the Passover. Right? I mean, it is just so significant, as we're going to see here today. But then secondly, the importance of Jesus. Jesus takes the Passover and transforms it. He alone has the authority and the, the power and the wisdom to take the Passover and to transform it. This most important of festivals, Jesus takes it, transforms it, and what does he do? He points it to himself. So this morning, we're going to explore the the really remarkable origin and meaning of Passover. And then after that, we're going to see how Jesus takes this Passover meal and he transforms it into what we call the Lord's Supper, right? Where Christians are now to remember and to celebrate. And then with all of that in our minds, as we close our service, we're going to take the Lord's Supper together. So hopefully God will grant us just a really rich time together celebrating his Lord's Supper in light of everything we've taken in. So please turn to Exodus chapter 11. Exodus chapter 11 here this morning. We're we're in the third message of a series on Exodus. I think it's going to be about three months or so. We'll see how it goes, but we're going to do half a dozen messages on really key events in the book of Exodus, and then we're going to switch gears and look at the Ten Commandments. So far, we've seen how 
in the book of Exodus, it opens up with the nation of Israel there in Egypt, right? And at first, they prospered. They were uh, just abounding. But then along comes a Pharaoh who didn't like them, right? And so he harshly treated them, enslaved them, and treated them uh, with hard burdens, carrying out this work of building these cities for him. Later, Pharaoh orders the murder of all newborn Hebrew boys. And in the midst of this, a boy named Moses was born. Moses uh, strategically was placed in front of Pharaoh's daughter out on the river there. She saw him, decided to raise him in her house, and Moses did that for about 40 years. And then one day, he's going out to see what was happening. He finds a fellow Hebrew being mistreated by an Egyptian. He tries to intervene, and he kills the Egyptian. Word spreads. Moses decides he's fleeing to Midian to escape. He's there, and he serves as a shepherd for about 40 years. And then we saw in Exodus 3, God appeared to Moses in a burning bush and revealed his name to Moses. The name of the Lord is Yahweh, right? He is. He is. That is his name, right? And so he revealed his name to Moses. He told Moses, I want you. You have a mission. You're going to go back to Egypt, and I want you to liberate the people. So he sends Moses back with Aaron to the, to the Israelites in Egypt there. He tells them the news. Pharaoh doesn't think very highly of this, so he adds to the burdens of Israel, making their work even harder to carry out. And then the Lord tells Moses to tell Pharaoh that he is going to send plagues upon the lamb. And that is what we saw last time. We saw nine different plagues that the Lord sends upon Egypt. And he did this so that the people of Israel would be liberated and that the Egyptians would know the Lord. So today we're going to pick up with this last plague, the tenth plague. It's really the most important plague of all because this is where we see God finally deliver the nation of Israel. And in the midst of this, we're going to see the institute of Passover being put into place. So let's turn to Exodus chapter 11. Exodus chapter 11. The first part is the warning of the final plague. So we see here as the chapter opens, the Lord tells Moses that he's going to execute one final plague and then Pharaoh's going to release them. So far, there's just been all these plagues happening, but there hasn't been that promise that this is going to be it. Now they get the good news that they're finally going to be released here. So that must have been a joyful moment. Also, Israel was to ask the Egyptians for gold and silver as they departed. Again, the, the turn of circumstances is just absolutely remarkable. They, they're going to go from being enslaved to plundering their captors. Finally, it mentions in here how Moses was treated in, with very high regard by the Egyptians. You can imagine kind of the aura, right, that Moses must have possessed when he was rock, walking around uh, the land of Egypt, knowing all these things that were happening as a result of his petitions to the Lord. And as we're going to see here, when they finally do leave, some of the Egyptians believe in the Lord and they take off with the Israelites as well. Remember how God promised Moses, I'm going to be with you? He's been very faithful to his promise so far, hasn't he? He has been with Moses in the midst of these plagues. 
So let's now turn to chapter 11, verses 4 to 10, and read these verses together. So Moses said, thus says the Lord, about midnight I will go out in the midst of Egypt, and every firstborn in the land of Egypt shall die, from the firstborn of Pharaoh who sits on his throne, even to the firstborn of the slave girl who is behind the handmill, and all the firstborn of the cattle. There shall be a great cry throughout all the land of Egypt, such as there has never been nor ever will be again. But not a dog shall growl against any of the people of Israel, either man or beast, that you may know that the Lord makes a distinction between Egypt and Israel. And all these your servants shall come down to me and bow down to me, saying, Get out, you and all the people who follow you. And after that, I will go out. And he, uh, speaking of Moses, went out from Pharaoh in hot anger. Then the Lord said to Moses, Pharaoh will not listen to you, that my wonders may be multiplied in the land of Egypt. Moses and Aaron did all these wonders before Pharaoh, and the Lord hardened Pharaoh's heart, and he did not let the people of Israel go out of his land. So Moses warns Pharaoh about this final plague. Every firstborn is going to die here, and then afterward, the Egyptians will plead with them to leave. Pharaoh hears of this warning, and he still refuses, still refuses. Unbelievable, right? I mean, it's kind of sad how a leader can plunge their nation into such ruin and despair and and nations all around them. We think about our own day and age, you know, with Russia and the despair that Vladimir Putin has brought upon his country and others around them. And Pharaoh is doing the same thing here. Now, in this passage, we read that the Lord hardened Pharaoh's heart. You find this dynamic in Scripture. If you've been reading along, how sometimes it refers to how Pharaoh hardens his own heart, and then sometimes it says that the Lord hardened his heart. This is not an incidental part of the story. In fact, it occurs in each of the ten plagues. Something is said about Pharaoh's heart being hardened. It appears 21 times in this passage. Not this passage, but all of the stories here with Pharaoh and Moses. So a lot of people are wondering, what happens? What's going on here? This is a very fascinating thing between the Lord and Pharaoh and his heart. What's going on here? A lot of discussion about this. So let's dig in a little bit here. The first two instances where this occurs, the Lord predicts that he will harden Pharaoh's heart. Even before Moses ever encounters him, the Lord predicts that this is what he is going to do. He said back in Exodus 4.21, When you go back to Egypt, see that you do before Pharaoh all the miracles that I have put in your power. But I will harden his heart so that he will not let the people go. Now, it doesn't say that the Lord has already hardened Pharaoh's heart, but it does say that he will. Now we come to when Moses and Pharaoh start interacting with each other. In the first 10 10 out of 11 times, it says that Pharaoh hardens his own heart, or it just says that Pharaoh's heart was hard, right? So there the focus is really on Pharaoh and how his heart is hard toward the message of Moses. But then as the plagues culminate, the dynamic changes. 
in seven of the last eight mentions, it says the Lord hardened Pharaoh's heart. So Scripture clearly highlights both sides of this dynamic. Does everybody see that? So we see on one hand very clearly that Pharaoh hardens his own heart. I mean, this guy was an incredibly stubborn, right, very stubborn, proud man. He refuses to heed Moses' words, despite the fact that he has seen miracle after miracle in his midst, despite the fact that he has, his nation is now basically in shambles, he has given numerous opportunities to change his mind, and he continues to dig in his heels. So Pharaoh's not just some blind robot doing God's plan. He is making his own choices. He is hardening his heart. Everybody see that? But on the other hand, the Lord hardens Pharaoh's heart. It's not enough merely just to say that God knew Pharaoh would harden his heart. Again, before they even interact, God tells Moses that he will do this to Pharaoh. God hardened Pharaoh's heart because he wanted to carry out the ten plagues upon Egypt to deliver his people and so that Egypt would know the Lord. You say, okay, all right, pastor, I see how those two things are there in the passage. How do you put those things together? I don't know how to do that. Join the club. Seriously, join the club. Because no one does. No one knows how to do that. Everybody says they have figured it out and they got a new book coming out. Don't buy it. Nobody can figure out how it all fits together. It's not as con- that it's contradictory. It's just that it goes beyond the mind of finite humanity. But it does say it, and we need to understand it. And basically what we need to do is to say, this is what Scripture teaches. This is what the summary of Scripture says. I like what uh, Dwayne Garrett, he gives a helpful summary for us. He says, interpreting the hardness of Pharaoh's heart, therefore we should not deny God's power to bend and move the human heart, but neither should we imply that Pharaoh was coerced into doing something that he did not really want to do. God stiffened Pharaoh's resolve, but the will to oppress Israel and resist God was his own. Let me say something to you. What we find here with Pharaoh is not utterly unique to him. Similarly, sometimes God allows people to pursue their own sin and rebellion. It's not just Pharaoh. In Romans 1, it teaches that humanity plainly knows that God exists by creation. Plainly knows. There's no excuse at all. Instead, though, of worshiping and honor our Creator, we decide to turn away from Him because of our sinful nature. And we make idols that we put in the place of God. We still worship something because God's made us that way, right? But we deny the existence of God as Lord over our lives. And here's what Paul says in Romans 1. Three times he says this. God gave them over to pursue their sinful desires. Did you hear that? 
He gives them over. That's a sobering and frightening thought. That is not a place that you want to be in, is it? Where God pulls his hands away from you. Sometimes we have in our mind that God would never do that. But the Bible clearly says that, yes, he will allow people to just harden themselves and plunge on in rebellion and destruction of their own lives. I would just encourage you, if maybe you're sitting here today and that's your condition, you've just really grown tired of the Lord, your heart is getting hard, I hope you hear this message today and get a wake-up call. Amen? That God is dealing with you now, but he may not always deal with you. And the last place you want to be is on just like a roller coaster ride to destruction. God will pull back his hand sometimes. While there is still day, turn and seek the Lord. Amen? That is not something to play games with. Second part is the establishment of the Passover. We move to chapter 12 here, and the Lord gives some instructions about how to avoid the plague. And these instructions are going to kind of go long term in seeing God's plan for the Passover to become part of Israel's future celebrations for centuries down the road. And so this, it becomes like a new beginning. Notice how it says in chapter 12, verse 2, This month will be for you the beginning of months. It shall be the first month of the year for you. So the month that Passover occurs is going to become kind of the new beginning of a whole new year for them. Basically, the Jewish calendar gets configured to, to center around Passover as the most important Jewish holiday and so vital for its history and identity. So how does Israel avoid this final plague? Well, to start there, it says they sacrifice a one-year-old male sheep or goat, okay? Then they would take some of the lamb's blood and spread it on the doorpost and on the lintel of the house. Then they would roast the lamb, leave no leftovers. Either they eat it all or they burn whatever is left. And then they eat unleavened bread and bitter herbs. And they probably had those meals because the unleavened bread symbolized that they were to leave in haste. When God did this plague, they were to leave the land of Egypt right away, not even waiting for the bread to leaven, right? They were to leave right away. The bitter herbs symbolized how their time in Egypt was a, a season of great bitterness for their lives. All right, so let's read verses 11 and 13 as the Lord establishes the Passover. It says, In this manner you shall eat it, for with your, with your belt fastened, your sandals on your feet, and your staff in your hand. And you shall eat it in haste. It is the Lord's Passover. For I will pass through the land of Egypt that night, and I will strike all the firstborn in the land of Egypt, both man and beast, and on all the gods of Egypt. I will execute judgments. I am the Lord. The blood shall be a sign for you and on the houses where you are. And when I see the blood, I will pass over you. And no plague will befall you to destroy you when I strike the land of Egypt. And so the Lord is going to go through the land of Egypt. And if he does not see the blood, he is going to carry out this plague. He said he's also carrying out judgment on all the gods of Egypt that we talked about last week. All of these false gods. The Lord was showing, hey, they don't exist. They are not real. 
But when he does see the blood over the frames of the doors, he will pass over that house for judgment. That's where we get the name, right? Pass over. The Lord will pass over their house if the blood is applied to their home. You see where this is going? In verses 14 to 20, we won't read it, but the Lord gives further instruction for how this festival is going to be kept when they go into the promised land. Passover is going to be kept each year as part of a year-long, a week-long celebration called the Feast of Unleavened Bread. And then in verse 21 and following, we're going to read about Israel, how they carry out the Passover, the very first one there in Egypt. And then after this has happened, it goes back to kind of the future promises. And then it says in verses 25 to 27, Moses commands them, And when you come to the land that the Lord will give you, as he has promised, you shall keep this service. And when your children say to you, what do you mean by this service? You shall say, it is the sacrifice of the Lord's Passover. For he passed over the houses of the people of Israel in Egypt when he struck the Egyptians, but spared our houses. It's amazing how the Lord not only establishes this institution here, but he uses it as an incredible teaching opportunity for the faith that they had to be passed on from generation to generation. Finally, we come to the third part, the execution of the tenth plague. Let's read verses 29 to 32. At midnight, the Lord struck down all the firstborn in the land of Egypt, from the firstborn of Pharaoh who sat on his throne to the firstborn of the captive who was in the dungeon, and all the firstborn of the livestock. And Pharaoh rose up in the night, he and all his servants and all the Egyptians, And there was a great cry in Egypt, for there was not a house where someone was not dead. Then he summoned Moses and Aaron by night and said, Up, go out from among my people, both you and the people of Israel, and go serve the Lord as you have said. Take your flocks and your herds as you have said, and be gone, and bless me also. So the Lord carries out the plague. We're not given the details of it. Other than the fact that there's the death of the firstborn, there's mourning throughout the land. Finally, I mean, finally, Pharaoh relents. It took all of this to finally bring this man to the place of relenting. And so he summons Moses and Aaron, tells them that they must leave at this point. And then, almost humorously, he asks Moses to bless him as he's on his way out. Am I the only one who finds that a little bit humorous there? I mean, after repeatedly rejecting the Lord, his country is in shambles, and he's like, oh yeah, by the way, can you please bless me on your way out? Pharaoh was a piece of work, I would say. Crazy, unbelievable, still hard-hearted, seeking his own benefit in the midst of all of this. Next time, we're going to cover the Exodus itself as Israel departs and passes through the Red Sea. Pharaoh is going to change his mind and then go after them one more time and pursue them in the Red Sea. Spoiler alert, it's not going to go well for Pharaoh. That much is sure. Church, this morning, I want to close by discussing Jesus and the Passover. 
Jesus and the Passover. As I said at the beginning, the night before the cross, Jesus gathered together the 12 disciples, and they celebrated the Passover meal. As they would have been celebrating, they would have had some matzah bread, some unleavened bread, right? They also would have more than likely had four cups of wine at the meal. These four cups were not commanded in Scripture, but they became the custom based on four promises that are actually found in the book of Exodus, chapter 6, verses 6 and 7. I'm going to try to throw it up on the screen there. This is the passage, I am the Lord, and here's the first promise, I will bring you out from the, cu- from the burdens of the Egyptians, and two, I will deliver you from slavery to them, and three, I will redeem you with an outstretched arm and with great acts of judgment, and four, I will take you to be my people, and I will be your God, and you shall know that I am the Lord your God who brought you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians. So as part of that meal, they would drink these four cups of wine. And many scholars think that it was actually the third cup which symbolized redemption there, that Jesus would have taken that cup and he would have taken the bread and he transforms the Passover meal into what we now celebrate as the Lord's Supper. And there is just so much that Jesus is doing with the bread and with the cup. And I just want to take a few moments and talk about how he transforms. But let's read together the famous scene here. Let's read verses 26 of Matthew into 29, where Jesus implements the Lord's Supper. He says, now as they were eating, Jesus took bread and after blessing it, broke it and gave it to the disciples and said, take, eat, this is my body. And he took a cup, and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them, saying, Drink of it, all of you, for this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. I tell you, I will not drink again of the fruit of the vine until that day when I drink it new with you in my Father's kingdom. So Jesus takes the bread and the cup. What are these things symbolizing here? Well, they obviously point to the cross, but they each have their own particular focus. So when Jesus takes that bread, what that symbolizes is his substitutionary death. He takes the bread and then he breaks it, symbolizing how he will be broken, right? His body is going to be broken. And it's not just broken, but it's broken on our behalf, amen? It's broken on our behalf. And here you kind of think about the Passover lamb, how it was sacrificed on behalf of others. Then we think a little bit later down in Israel's history of how they developed a whole sacrificial system where uh, the blood, or excuse me, an animal would be broken in a sense to pay for the sins of others. And then we read amazingly enough in Isaiah 53 about this one unique substitute who will be given for all of God's people. Isaiah 53 speaks of that Messiah whose body will be broken. In verses 5 and 7, it says, He was wounded for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon Him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with His stripes we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned every one to His own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. 
like a lamb that is led to the slaughter, and like a sheep that before shears is silent, so he opened not his mouth. Jesus fulfilled this prophecy, didn't he? When he suffered on our behalf, his body was broken on our behalf. He was beaten by the religious leaders. He was flogged by the Roman soldiers where they would take leather straps and beat his back. He was crucified, which was so incredibly cruel and inhumane. And then most of all, he took our place by absorbing the wrath of God for our sins. He was broken on our behalf so that we might come to God. 1 Peter 3.18 says, For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God. Let us not just skip past that powerful imagery of that bread that was broken for you and I. His his body was broken so that we could be made right with God. What about the cup, the wine cup? Well, that symbolizes the new covenant. Wine, obviously, symbolic imagery of blood. And so let's read again those words Jesus said. Drink of it, all of you, for this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. Now keep tracking with me here. In Exodus chapter 24, verse 8, when the Lord establishes the covenant with the nation of Israel, it says that it is sealed, quote, with the blood of the covenant. So the covenant in the Old Testament was sealed with the blood of these animal sacrifices. That is how God instituted the old covenant. We know from Israel's history how they repeatedly failed in their obedience with this covenant centuries upon centuries upon centuries dealing with idolatry and exile, prophets being sent, calling them back, saying, come back to the Lord. And there was this continual sense of unfaithfulness. And the Lord said, one day I'm going to create a new covenant with you that's going to outstrip the old with his promises. Jeremiah 31, 31 speaks of a new covenant. And Jesus here claims to be the fulfillment of this promises and seals it. What does he say there? With, quote, my blood of the covenant. Using that same imagery from Exodus 24, 8, now saying he's the one. I mean, this should just blow us out of our chairs. 1,500 years under this covenant, and now Jesus is sitting at the table and saying, new covenant has now been put in place. And part of that new covenant was that that blood was going to atone for our sins. In the old covenant, that blood would symbolize kind of a temporal forgiveness of sins, but we needed something greater, didn't we? A permanent spirit, conscience, cleansing that Jesus gives. Ephesians 1.7 says, In Christ we have redemption through His blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of His grace. So Jesus gives us this Lord's Supper to symbolize what He has done on our behalf. The bread symbolizes His broken body substituting for us, and the cup symbolizes the new covenant that he has now made with his people. So church, Jesus is the true Passover lamb. Amen? He fulfills all of the Old Testament promises. 
Passover was the great Old Testament event where Israel was liberated from the bondage of Egypt. But Jesus comes along and he fulfills all of that and more by showing how his people are liberated from the bondage of sin and made right with their creator and their maker. 1 Corinthians 5.7 says, Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed. John 1.29 says of Jesus, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. As we close, I just want to make sure that we understand this is meant for us personally. Amen? The Lord's Supper proclaims the gospel. We need a substitute. We need someone to take our place because we have all sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And because God is just, he will punish our sins. We don't stand in a good spot. But we can stand in a good spot if we allow someone else to take our spot. And that's exactly what Jesus came to do. He came to die for our sins. We have a choice. We can suffer for them ourselves, or we can trust Christ as our Passover so that on Judgment Day, God will pass over us. And He won't see our sin anymore, will He? He'll see the righteousness of Christ. But it all goes back to what you and I do in this time, in this place, where we don't harden our hearts but we know that we have trusted Jesus Christ as our Lord and as our Savior. Will you trust him today? That's never become a reality. We urge you to not take more time. Follow Christ while the door is open. While your heart is not hard, believe in him, and he will receive you today as Lord and Savior. So church, we want to celebrate also the Lord's Supper here together. And I do want to give a disclaimer before we take of it, that when Jesus instituted the Lord's Supper, it was meant for his church. It's not an open-ended celebration for all people to partake, but it's actually meant for the church. Those who have trusted in Jesus Christ, this is our time to remember what Jesus has done and to reflect upon our own lives to make sure that we are following Christ with every ounce of our being. So let me invite now the ushers, if you would please come up to the front. We're going to pass out the Lord's Supper. We're going to read a passage of Scripture from 1 Corinthians chapter 11. And we're going to pray and take it together. So let me invite those who are going to come up and pass out the Lord's Supper together. Uh, we also have, uh, we have the bread and the cup together here. Uh, but we also, if you, if you feel so led, we, we have it all packaged together. If you, you know, still kind of have some COVID sensibilities, want to respect that. So we have those as well. If anybody would like to do that, please lift up your hand at this point now. Okay. So can I ask you, gentlemen and ladies, if you would please pass out the Lord's Supper at this time. We'll take the Lord's Supper in a few moments after we read God's Word.
from 1 Corinthians chapter 11. Apostle Paul says, For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus on the night when he was betrayed took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, he also took the cup after the supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as you often as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Whoever therefore eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty concerning the body and blood of the Lord. Let a person examine himself then and so eat of the bread and drink of the cup. Let us pray. Lord Jesus, we thank you. We stand in awe of who you are, the Passover lamb, the true Passover lamb. We thank you for your teaching here about how you have taken the Passover and pointed to its ultimate significance, and you are that. We stand in awe of who you are, and because of who you are, Lord, we want to partake of this bread and this cup in a worthy manner. So, Lord, we ask you to cleanse our hearts and our minds of things that have dishonored you, Ways and patterns and attitudes and words that did not bring you glory and honor. We ask your cleansing. We don't want to harden our hearts toward those sins that cost your life. Lord, we thank you for this new covenant. A covenant that will never cease. A covenant that will last forever. And that how we as your people are safe in your hands. And we do look forward to the day when you return when we will celebrate with all God's people from all the ages, all around the world, the marriage supper of the Lamb. We love you, Lord Jesus. We thank you for what you've given us, this tangible reminder of what you've done on the cross and how you love us so very much. And it's in your name we pray. And all God's people said, Amen.